Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Ed Ayers. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Brian Bella. Each week on the podcast, Ed, Joanne, our colleague Nathan Connolly, and yours truly explore the history of a topic that's been in the news. This week, we're marking Memorial Day, our national holiday that honors those who've died while serving in the military. So today, we're going to look at some of the reasons people have enlisted in the U.S. Armed Forces. Let's go back to the winter of 1781. That was the middle of the Revolutionary War. The conflict was in its sixth year, and things didn't look good for the Patriot cause. British troops had invaded Virginia and burned Richmond. Historian Michael McDonald says that by this point, Patriots struggled to find colonists who were willing to enlist or even to keep fighting. There's a real problem of morale. So even as the British were invading, in some places in the state, people were rioting against their own local officials and saying, we've had enough. Virginia and other states tried to enforce conscription, but as the war ground on, McDonald says, many colonists simply refused. Thousands of young men had already either served their time in the Continental Army or had fought with local militias against the British. There were many, many people who were, by this point, tired of the demands of the war. The initial flush of enthusiasm had worn off. And, uh, and of course, there were a lot of people who would have been just as happy to have stayed within the British Empire. Uh, increasingly during the war years, uh, and it really comes to a head in Virginia, particularly in the midst of the British invasion, there were uprisings, riots, rebellions uh, in counties in places like Virginia and elsewhere against conscription. Enlistment has become really a massive problem. This is historian Michael Blakeman. He says state governments and the Continental Congress scrambled to find a solution. They began to roll out more enticing incentives to attract soldiers. Whether it's offering people higher pay, um, some states start thinking about offering Um, slaves as forms of payment. Blakeman says the Continental Army's regular inducements, money, food, and shelter, just weren't enough. These governments are terribly short on all kinds of material. They're short on munitions. They're short on uniforms. They're super short on money. But land seems abundant. Land seems almost infinite. Yeah, you heard that right. Land. States and Congress began to hand out land bounties. Now, these were essentially IOUs that offered soldiers parcels of land in western Pennsylvania and Ohio in exchange for military service. Of course, this land wasn't vacant. It had been occupied for millennia by American Indians. Blakeman says the founders had been planning to seize this territory from those native populations anyway. And these bounties served multiple purposes. A land bounty system promises to, after the war, kind of plant a bunch of battle-hardened veterans on the frontier, right? They'll bring their families with them, they'll set up farms and build houses, and in doing so, they will assert U.S. claims 
to these regions that are still heavily contested between the United States and native peoples whose, whose homelands these are. Blakeman says these land grants served another purpose. They kept the colonists from switching sides to the British, and that was a real threat. Loyalty during the American Revolution was paper thin. I mean, you had people who might switch sides from patriot to loyalist numerous times throughout the war based on shifting momentum, based on their own personal circumstances. So one of the things that a land bounty does is it kind of binds a soldier's loyalty to the patriot cause. It says, yeah, we'll pay you with this promise to get land, but you only get that land if we win. Now, as we all know, the patriots did win. But most of the promises of free land were broken. After the war, speculators bought up many of the land bounties from soldiers who needed cash. So that hoped-for class of landholding veterans on the frontier never materialized. The land bounties didn't even solve the Continental Army's enlistment problems. Historian Michael McDonald says that no one incentive would be adequate to attract enough soldiers to the patriot cause. And yet, over the course of the war, enough men found enough reasons to keep on fighting. Often economic reasons, often because the army or the armed services promises a kind of a future for people who may not be sure about what they want to do. And of course, there's patriotism always. And we often see that at the beginning of wars, that there's a kind of a flush of enthusiasm and patriotism. And then as wars grind on and become bloodier and become a little bit more complicated and and there's a lot more light shone on the kind of issues around the war, then there's a kind of a backlash and there's a kind of a rethinking of why and how people would get involved. The American Revolution is often portrayed as a straightforward conflict between American patriots and colonists loyal to the British. But McDonald's research presents a much more complicated picture, one in which soldiers had multiple motives for enlisting. And that makes sense. The choice for citizens to serve and possibly die for their country is often the most consequential decision that one can make. So today on the show, we're looking at the history of military enlistment, focusing on the reasons individual men and women sign up. We'll hear why young American men joined militias rather than the U.S. Army in the 18th and early 19th century. We'll also learn why the American military actively recruited Filipino soldiers to serve in the American Navy. And we'll hear from our listeners about why they chose to enlist. But first, let's turn to the early 19th century. The U.S. military was small, and few American men wanted to sign up for life as a professional soldier. But many American men did serve in local militias. You know, serving in the militia, Brian, was not really an onerous kind of service. Uh, You just showed up a couple times a year, did some marching around, probably some drinking. And it was a nonpartisan effort. This is something that brought together all the men of a community. But young men who wanted to join up found a new option on the eve of the Civil War. American politics was increasingly polarized and violent. During the contentious election of 1860, a strange new military-style organization spread across the North. Its members called themselves the Wide Awakes. Most Wide Awakes were in their teens and early 20s. Even if they were too young to vote, they were all staunch Republicans, determined to elect Abraham Lincoln and defeat the Democrats at the ballot box. They loved martial displays and certainly looked like they were ready to rumble. 
Tens of thousands of wide awakes paraded through small towns and big cities across the North in 1860. They marched at night, moving through the streets in crisp military formation and shiny new uniforms. Historian John Grinspan told me that the wide awakes attracted a lot of attention and provoked more than a little annoyance wherever they went. We have to imagine it's midnight, two in the morning, you're on the cobblestone streets of New York City, and first... You probably smell them coming a mile away because everyone in this procession has a oil-burning torch that just stinks, like coal oil or turpentine. And then you hear the sound of hundreds of people marching down cobblestone streets. These large groups of young men in companies of a hundred wearing black capes, shiny, shimmering black capes and caps, militaristic caps, and holding these torches. It's incredibly striking. They're usually silent. They're not even cheering. They're oh, just usually wow. stern, silent marchers. And it's it's powerful in Manhattan, but it, you have to imagine it's even more powerful in a small town in Wisconsin yeah, where right. you only see 100, 200 people, and then all of a sudden here are 10,000 people marching down Main Street. 10,000? Yeah. This is a massive movement. Americans in 1860 believe there are half a million wide awakes. I think it's closer to 100,000, but this is a movement that is popular in every northern state and in a couple parts of the upper south as well. Well, wide awake sounds kind of like woke today, you know? I mean, (laughs) of people really being people who had been asleep or who had been unaware now kind of getting it. Is that what wide awake means? You know, I never thought of the woke thing, but it's exactly the same idea that people who had previously been sleeping and slumbering and not paying attention to society are suddenly alert. And it's a great icon, too. All their propaganda and symbols have an open eye on it. Their opponents point to it, too, and say the wide awakes need to go back to sleep and organize a movement called the Chloroformers, who are supposed to put the wide awakes back to sleep. So (laughs) everyone gets in on the metaphor. So what's the deal with the capes? They look cool. (laughs) The capes symbolize militarism. Uh, mm -hmm. In in the 1850s and 1860s, there's something going on called militia fever, in which Americans and people in Europe are kind of won over to the appeal of military symbols, not necessarily for going out and fighting wars, but for the way it symbolizes progress and dynamism and organization. The the young men who are joining the war— And dressing up, apparently. Yes, and dressing up and making a big thing out of an event. It connects to what the Wide Awakes are all about, which is they're young Northern Republicans who feel in some ways that their masculinity has been threatened by the slave power and Southerners who they believe dominate the federal government, have been caning Northern senators in the Senate. And so getting together and looking as tough and as badass as they possibly can in these uniforms is no accident. They go to the militaristic symbols on purpose. So we see the allure of the cape. I mean, that goes without saying. And the torch, that's awesome too, right? Um, But once you get beyond that first thrill of the dressing up, what is it that's (laughs) motivating them? It's funny. They don't even care about Lincoln that much. I mean, they want him to be elected and he's their guy. But what they care about is the Republican Ah. Party. They These are people who grew up, if you think the average wide awake is 21 years old or so, they've grown up in an environment where they feel as if Northerners are being stepped all over and kind of bullied by a Southern minority. Politics has failed this young generation, but militarism has been really successful. They've looked at the Mexican-American War, which happened in their childhood, added hundreds of thousands of, of miles of land to America. So they see militarism is really compelling and politics is really weak. And so... 
what they want ideologically is to, to stand up for the North, stand up for the Republican Party, defeat the Democrats, especially locally. They really see local Democrats in their communities as the main villains in all this. Did everybody welcome the side of these marching silent men and torches and capes? No, a portion of the country is thrilled by the wide awakes and sees them as Batman, sees them as these kind of caped Avengers who are going to solve their country's <laughs> problems. And then another portion of the country, people living in the South, people who support the Democratic Party, see them as an ominous sign of what's happening to the country and what's happening to democracy. They look like a military threat and they look like a permanent paramilitary organization that's taking over a peaceful democracy and is more threatening to union than anything else at the time, as far as wow. people who hate the wide awakes are concerned. So we know that the Civil War follows on this with remarkable speed. Are the wide awakes playing into that? Are they helping to foment militarism, or are they just sort of partaking of this kind of play militia fever that you're talking about? How would you parse that relationship? I think it's both. I think the Wide Awakes are a good example of the power of military symbols to enlist people in a movement and to terrify everyone else who's not in that movement. That for those people who join the Wide Awakes, they're not preparing for a civil war. They're not preparing for violence. They're not any more violent than the Democrats or the Know-Nothings or any other party at the time or organization. They think it's a compelling symbol to organize a movement around. But for people, if you live in South Carolina or Texas— and you, all you do is you read newspapers about a paramilitary movement marching down the streets in Manhattan and Philadelphia and Chicago, it looks really ominous and really threatening. And it they don't do it intentionally, but it definitely helps set the stage for people in the South to interpret the election of Abe Lincoln as a bridge being crossed and as a moment when abolitionists have seized control of the federal government and are running a permanent militaristic campaign against your interests. So they really scare people, people they don't know and can't communicate with that well. So even though they did not intend it, they were kind of literally playing with fire. Uh, yes. <laughs> they were not intending war to result from this. And everybody is surprised that despite this kind of behavior, that it does somehow eventuate in war. Do the wide awake um, membership eagerly rush into the army? As far as we know, yes, they do. And they also, individuals who are wide awake organizers and activists, set up their own militias that become part of the Union Army. And actually, some of the first bloodshed of the Civil War in St. Louis, the fight at Camp Jackson to get the arsenal away from the um, potentially secessionist governor of the state, is organized by wide awakes. They're German-American wide awakes who are organized from a, from a political movement into a military movement which brings about a, a battle with, I think, 75 wounded and 28 dead. Some of the first bloodshed of the war is wide awakes. Do you think that the war sort of fulfilled this longing that they had before to prove their manhood? Yeah. I mean, they, they're volunteering excitedly, and the war is just is a, seems like a great opportunity to live that out. I think most people who experience the war— give up on that that romantic view of it pretty quickly. But um, yeah. in 1860, 1861, it seems, it seems very compelling. It seems like the future of the country. And for those people who hate the wide awakes too, for, for Southerners who enlist in the Confederate Army, they are just as compelled by the sense that they are defending their, their homeland from this invading force. John Grinspan is a curator of political history at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History and author of The Virgin Vote. 
Earlier, we heard from Michael McDonald, a historian at the University of Sydney in Australia, and historian Michael Blakeman at the University of St. Thomas. It's time to take a short break. When we get back, just what did all those local militias actually do in the early republic? But first, a word from today's sponsor. We're back, talking about the history of enlistment in America. Ed, I'm dying to hear about a phrase uh, used in the interview, militia fever. But before I worry about the fever, I'd love to hear a bit more about militias uh, in the early Republic, Joanne. Well, of course, the, the militia, Brian, that's a, that's a big American tradition that goes all the way back, even before the early Republic, to colonial America, and even before that, back to England. It involves local men who must join if they're between the age of 16 and 60, uh, and are basically there for local defense and safety. Now, that sounds really official and formal, but the fact of the matter is they didn't meet very often unless there was a threat, uh, and sometimes Native Americans were a threat, and certainly the revolution is its own little period. Generally, they would meet maybe once or twice a year just to sort of establish the fact that they were there. Kind of knock There'd the rest a... off their guns. Exactly. They got to put on, you know, march around, actually. They got, I'm sure, a great deal of fun at a parading around the town green. And, you know, everyone came out and applauded. And sometimes they got to make a, a sort of fake battle. And there was a heck of a lot of drinking. And really, the militia did have the reputation of being a bunch of goofy guys who don't know what they're doing and aren't really good at handling rifles as and, and who were necessary. Honestly, they would have been, right? Yeah. I mean, fighting requires incredible discipline and training, and these guys wouldn't have had any. So I think, you know, the distance between the militia and the real army was enormous. Well, I mean, first of all, the militias weren't trained. You might not say they're military units. They're armed local people who are supposed to be there for defense. I mean, in that tradition, that idea that local men will rise up and protect what's theirs, I mean, that's, you know, a sort of Jeffersonian yeoman farmer ideal as well. There were so many fears in the same time period of a standing army as a tool of despotism. And Standing armies. We always say that. Why call it standing armies? <laughs> oh, that's true. Sitting armies, armies are so <laughs> ineffective. <laughs> and before they invented right. tanks, yeah, I mean, exactly. sitting armies just don't cut it. <laughs> Running armies? No, yeah. it's true. Standing army, permanent army, right? Yeah, that would be right. a better way of putting it, a permanent army. But then the 19th century, Ed, I'm going to toss the yeah. ball to you now. Right. So this tradition continues on for a while. What happens then when you get a little further into the 19th century? Yeah, well, you know, for much of the 19th century, after some of the threats that you talk about recede, you know, once the English are defeated in the revolution, once the American Indians have been driven to the West, it's hard to imagine much of a reason to get together and drill in the town square with your rusty muskets. But it goes from being a joke to being in the 1850s kind of quasi-professional in the sense that it becomes more like a military unit. The wide awakes are not alone in their uniforms, in their marching, in their gathering, in their discipline. And you'd find northern and southern uh, militia are both doing this, enlisting men in when, even though when there's no crisis. But Ed, why do that instead of enlisting in the army? Because to be a career army officer is meant to be shipped off to some godforsaken obscure fort somewhere where nothing is ever going to happen mm -hmm. and to dash your hopes for a good marriage and to dash your hopes for a successful career. But you can be a young doctor or lawyer or carpenter and 
join the militia and have some of the excitement of the military-like experience without the dislocation that comes from actually joining the army. And the enforced discipline and the enforced time that you have to be there and everything else, yeah, all of the yeah. things that are It's all cast the fun in some... of the army with none of the, the risk and cost. So being all you can be back in those days entailed pursuing your private ambitions and then showing up on occasion to demonstrate your manhood and cool-looking gear. And also, of course, in addition to showing your coolness, um, you are demonstrating civic awareness of some kind. Whether or not you're feeling it, you're definitely demonstrating it. Yeah. So, Ed, Brian, I want to throw into the conversation something that we would associate with enlistment, but we haven't really talked about it, and that's patriotism. Oh, yeah. Certainly, if you look back to the early period that I write about, local units, like the militia units, were also community things. Many people in colonial and even in early America conceived of their colony and then their state as their country. And they were fighting for their community. And in that sense, their country too. Patriotism was local, but it was no less meaningful or important to them. But that obviously has to change and grow over time. Well, it, do, it doesn't change up until the age of the Civil War because mm. Robert E. Lee famously says, I cannot raise a sword against my own people. I would be patriotic to Virginia rather than patriotic to the United States, to which I've sworn a lifetime oath. But here's the thing. When the enlistment for the Civil War begins, the militia in each community would go into this army, both northern and southern, and then if they were decimated at a particular battle, that community would just be wiped out back home. Mm. All the young men of, of the place would be killed in a single charge, right? Wow. And so you have the thing that was seen as its great strength, its ties to the local community, end up being something that was really just crippling uh, to that same community when those young men went off and died. Now, after the Civil War, people talk about the United States as a single entity rather than as a union of states. From then on, people are going to know what enlistment means. Enlistment means you're signing up for a big national army, routinized, professionalized. That is a career in a way that it was not before the Civil War. It's time to take a short break. When we get back, listeners tell us why they enlisted in the armed forces. But first, this quick message. Okay, Ed, what do Dolly Parton, Don King, and Albert Einstein all have in common? Oh, gosh. Well, one thing they have in common, and something I admire so much and try to embody in my own life, is pretty extravagant hair. That is true. They all have signature hairstyles. Their locks say something about who they are. Now, have you ever had some kind of a signature hairstyle, Ed? In the very early 70s, when I finally was allowed to have my hair the way that it was meant to be, which is out of control and curly and too long, it meant <laughs> I was like Bob Dylan. And then while other people adapted to the times, I refused to. So I still look like that. <laughs> <laughs> History forever, right? Uh, you're, you're exactly. <laughs> Historical hair. I'm letting my freak flag fly, except it won't actually oh. fly. It just kind of sits there. <laughs> well, that leads us into the question that we're going to be talking about soon. And that is, what does your hairstyle say about you? How does your hair convey your identity? Or are you happy that it doesn't? 
So listeners, send us a 30-second voice memo from your smartphone to backstory at virginia.edu. And we'll feature some of your stories on our upcoming episode on the history of hair. We were just talking about the various reasons Americans enlisted in militias in the colonial era and early republic. But now we want to turn to your reasons for joining the military. Over the past few weeks, we've been asking our listeners to send us their enlistment stories. Here's a sampling of those voices. Hey, Backstory. My name is Jason Kane. I enlisted in the Army uh, after sleeping through my midterm exam uh, for my evolutionary biology class in my senior year of college. I was an evolutionary biology major. I realized that I would never be able to go on and and get a PhD. I needed some new discipline in my life, so I ran away, joined the Army. Ten years later, I went through five combat deployments, uh, went to grad school, and uh, and finished that goal. Uh, Anyway, uh, last year I graduated from Harvard. Uh, So yeah, it all worked out, wouldn't change a thing. My name is Russell Finnegan. I am an Army captain currently serving in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I decided to join the Army in large part because of uh, 9-11. It happened while I was in middle school but had a really big impact on me. And I'd say to some measure or another, most people in my generation who I serve with in the Army, and especially the generation immediately before me, there's just so many guys I work with who... uh, came into the force because of 9-11, because of that impact. My name is Raymond Ray Christian. I joined the Army right out of high school at 17 years old in 1978. uh, My primary motivation was to escape the only life I'd ever known. Uh, Growing up living in poverty and My goal was also to realize the life I had dreamed of, the only realistic way I thought that was available to me. I mean, I was a blue-collar person with a blue-collar background, and I wanted to earn some respect. And in my community, it wasn't uncommon to see guys who returned right out of high school in their uniforms from different branches of the military, or older guys who would always say things like, yeah, if I stayed in, I would have made something special out of myself. So I I had that social community motivation for joining. Hey, Backstory. My name's Captain Stacy. I'm a U.S. Army physician, paratrooper, and flight surgeon. When I was in college, I knew I needed a way to pay for medical school, and I considered the Army as a way to do that. I also wanted to be motivated by a sense of patriotism, But at the time, I just felt like I wasn't patriotic enough to be a part of the Army. To help me get over that feeling, my recruiter brought in a lieutenant colonel who was also a physician. Her message to me was, It's okay if it's all about the money. You don't need anything else. I joined for the money. Plenty of people joined for the money. You can join for the money, too. I took her advice, and I'm pleased to say that even though I joined for the money, I've developed a strong sense of patriotism and a love for the Army as I've served throughout Europe and the United States. Thanks, Backstory. Those were the voices of Jason Kane, Russell Finnegan, Raymond Christian, and Stephen Stacy. Thanks to all of you who reached out to share your stories.
For decades, enlistment in the military has been closely associated with American citizenship. In 1862, Congress passed legislation that offered naturalization for immigrants who enlisted in the U.S. Army during the Civil War. After World War I, the government declared that any immigrant fighting for U.S. forces was eligible for citizenship. But we'd like to turn to a unique example in American history when the U.S. military actively recruited soldiers from a former colony. The Philippines became a U.S. protectorate after the Spanish-American War in 1898. The U.S. occupied the island nation for almost 50 years, including through a bloody and failed uprising for self-rule. The Philippines finally gained its independence from the U.S. in 1946. A year later, the two countries signed an agreement that allowed the United States to maintain a military presence in its former colony. The accord included an unusual provision. It allowed young Filipino men to enlist in the United States Navy. They were the only foreigners allowed to join the service without having first moved to the United States. The program was highly selective. Nearly 100,000 young men applied every year, but in some years, as few as just 400 were chosen. By the time the agreement ended in 1992, some 35,000 Filipinos had won a coveted spot in the United States Navy. One of them was Artemio Manilang, who enlisted in 1975. I sat down with Artemio and his daughter, April Faye Manilang. She's a professor at Norfolk State University, and she studies the experiences of Filipino veterans like her father. I asked Artemio, or Art as he prefers to be called, what made him want to enlist in the U.S. Navy. Oh, they were offering uh, good pay. <laughs> and uh, Philippines during that time was like there are almost no jobs existing. Hmm. If there are, they're not really paying you enough to support the family. I see. How, how big was your family, Art? It's very big. I'm the second eldest. Uh-huh. We're 11. Yeah, so I said I have to do something here. Now, what did your family think when you sailed off? With the Navy. They, they love it, too, because I, I kept sending money every month uh-huh. so, so I can help these siblings and my parents. So they were proud of you and, and grateful, too, right? Yes, of course, <laughs> yes. The best thing ever happened to us. It's like winning a, a jackpot for life, I think. Well, that's great. I don't want to focus on negative things in such a positive story, but I'm guessing everything wasn't, as they say, smooth sailing, was it? The really struggle was when you're dealing with the sudden change of the environment, because coming from a tropical country like the Philippines, like between 90 degrees, 100 something all year round, and then suddenly they brought you in San Diego, preferably Treasure Island, where it's windy and so cold. We were like, wait a minute, (laughs) It's, it's too cold, it's so cold, we can't bear it. So it's a good thing they gave us our uniforms. So everybody was in their pea coats and raincoats. And, well, it's just a good thing they didn't that, ship you to Seattle, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and dealing with the people and then the language, it was a culture shock. So did you ever run into prejudice? Yeah, yes. Uh, you can feel it. Sometimes you, they say it, but you have to keep thinking forward. Right, that, right. Uh, hey, you have to re- reset your attitude to where you want to make believe yourself that, hey, I'm also as equal as they are. So can you give us an example? Well, the only resentment that I can recall back then was my first few years 
you know, because I was the only, like in my first assignment, I was kind of the only Filipino in the group. Sometimes they would say, hey, take him up there where he belongs. I found out later that where I supposed to be belonging to work was up there in the galley. <laughs> so do you mean they thought you should have been a cook? Yes, because most of my my friends, Filipino uh, Filipinos, were working as stewards back then and cooks. Right, right. So what work did you do? I, I did uh, maintaining, operating, and troubleshooting uh, Propulsion engines. Uh-huh. I was in engineering anyway. I was an engineman, to be exact. Well, that sounds like a lot of responsibility. Did Were there other Filipino sailors with you, or were you kind of on your own? If I can recall, we were 14, but I was the only one in engineering. So I guess you, you were in a higher status, but maybe lonelier position than the other Filipino men working all together? Yes. When you signed up with the Navy, uh, was American citizenship something that was on your mind? Was that a goal? Uh, yes, it's becoming to be a goal as soon as I uh, reported to the ship because that's when the Filipinos gathered and talked. You know, every chance we get, hey, how are we going to do this? How are we going to bring our families here? How are we going to improve their lives, our lives? That's when we found out, hey, citizenship, get them over here. You know, get them enrolled, get them a vocation, college degree, whatever, so that when you bring them over here, they're ready to, to work. How long did it take you to achieve that? Nine and a half years. So, April, I know that uh, you've been looking at the experience of people such as your father in your work. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you found from a sort of a, a more analytical perspective? Yes. Filipino-American military servicemen and their families, they feel that opportunity and the ability to obtain American citizenship is what they call a blessing from God. Well, that's and pretty, so then pretty the strong question, endorsement. <laughs> it is, and it, yeah, and it took me true. off guard. So uh, I then began to ask the question of if they feel that their American citizenship is a blessing, then how do they conceptualize that Civically, because another accompanying finding that has uh, persisted throughout the interviews is this this feeling of what they have termed and and coined as utang nung luub, which means feeling indebtedness for the host nation which provided those opportunities, as embodied by my father. So, April, what do you make of your father's experience in relationship to the larger American experience with the Philippines, which has not always been an easy one? I'll personally share that I feel ambivalent about it because I know that there is that former colonial relationship. And so there is that aspect of the power dynamics coming to play. And when I interview these military servicemen, that is not the story they're telling me, by and large. And so there's the very real interviews in which people are reporting overall a positive experience. And then what I've also found in the interviews is that because they feel that blessing of American citizenship. And due to that indebtedness, the first generation in particular feels uncomfortable hmm. with politically engaging political protests. I see. It feels like it's demanding and, something rather than giving something. Right. Yeah. So I have even heard the phrase of like, you know, we don't want to bite the hand that feeds us. And it is enough for them that their children are more successful than they are. 
What they do say, though, is that our children will do that because our children will not have that indebtedness. Ah, I I did ask my youngest brother, Paul, once, do you feel indebted? And he's like, what are you talking about? For what? And I said, for being American? And he just goes, you're weird. (laughs) (laughs) I do suspect that might embody my generation. Well, uh, the positive interpretation of this is you feel the debt has been paid. Your parents paid the debt, and now you're full Americans to do whatever you want to do. What I will say is I am very grateful for the opportunities and blessings that I have experienced due to my father's enlistment, which I know, I know for a fact would not be possible without his hard work. So, Art, it seems only fitting that you should have the last word. You know, you, you've served the United States a lot longer than most people who were born here. <laughs> Would you like to reflect on what the story of your life as American sailor means? Being an American sailor is to come here and serve the United States Navy and fulfill the dreams that everybody dreams about in the Philippines. It was an honor and it was a blessing from God. Artemio Manalang retired from the U.S. Navy in 1999 after 24 years of service. April Fay Manalang is a professor at Norfolk State University. Okay, so Ed, Brian... During the revolutionary period, you had a whole bunch of different ways to get people to enlist. You had the hiring of mercenaries. You had people being enticed with the offer of of money. Um, But one thing we really haven't talked about is the draft. Yeah, Joanne. In the revolution, you had conscription. But in the Civil War, they took it to a whole nother level. Both the United States and the Confederacy had to build vast armies virtually overnight. And the number of men actually drafted was relatively small because just the presence, the threat of the draft, encouraged men to volunteer before they had to be drafted. If you were drafted, you had to go wherever they sent you. If you volunteered, you could fight with your local unit. And once you were actually enlisted in the Army, north or south, if you were known as a draftee, what they called a conscript, you were not treated well by your fellow soldiers. They considered you somewhat cowardly and probably pretty inept. They weren't really (laughs) thrilled to see you show up on their flank. So it was a stigma attached both at home and on the battlefield, and yet the draft was very important to both sides. Now, it goes away after the end of the Civil War. The United States doesn't have to fight another major war for generations. And so I know that in the 20th century, Brian, they had to scramble when it comes to World War I, right? That's right, Ed. In fact, every major war that the United States fought in the 20th century was staffed in part by drafting Americans. World War I, the United States got into the Great War very late in the game, so they didn't have to draft that many people. And a lot of Americans hoped to get back to the draft being an exception, like it was with the Civil War. But World War II comes along, and there are a huge number of Americans drafted. It actually made the army very egalitarian. Everybody was subject to the draft. In Korea, the draft continued. Uh, It continued through Vietnam, and um, we really didn't end the draft until the 1970s uh, when Richard Nixon advocated for what became known as the all-volunteer army. 
So, Brian, now we've gone to an all-volunteer Army. What would you reckon as sort of the, the pros and cons of that? Well, as much as the draft challenges our conception of liberty, for instance, right. the draft during World War II, for instance— affected all Americans. And the army was a real cross-section, to the extent you can get that in an army, of all Americans. You contrast that to the Vietnam War, where there was a draft, but increasingly that draft fell disproportionately on poor people and disproportionately on African Americans in order to fight a very un popular war, a war that was seen as immoral. Mm. So, Brian, where does that leave us today? It's very easy to forget that when America fights its wars, and we are at war in a number of places, the burden of war is falling disproportionately on those who enlist, those in the military, and is not spread fully across society. That's going to do it for today, but you could keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about American history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And if you like the show, feel free to review it in Apple Podcasts. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in our show came from Pottington Bear, Ketza, and Jazar. And thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Studio in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. We're a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. 